0: Good morning. Would you uh I know that you have already done this so forgive me for re- reminding you to do something you've already done but please check make sure your cell phone is off. Yeah. Well, I was telling Wayne earlier, I have the memory of an elephant. I think it was at the zoo. Okay. So, as always, thanks to the people back there who make this possible, and welcome to those of you who are in the room, and to those of you who are watching, um, Tim and John and Olivia and William, Richard, Wayne, Calista, thank you. Anyway, we're going to begin as we have been in silence. So we take a breath to be here and acknowledge that at this very moment, we are abiding safely in the heart of sacred mystery and that this unnameable mystery seeks to find expression through who we are and how we live. Our intention is to know who we are And that all creation benefit from what we do here. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. This man significantly shaped my life. As a matter of fact, those of you who were in the first service, He wrote the words to the closing hymn that we sang today. Um, This is uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick when he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. He died in 1969, just three years after I moved to Houston. Um, I moved here after getting fired from teaching in the seminary because I followed this guy's teaching. Um... I embraced his philosophy. I think that the four people who really shaped me at that part in my life um, in graduate school and seminary and when I was working on my doctorate were this man, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a German theologian by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, another German theologian who lived in the United States, Paul Tillich, and of course the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Those four really have shaped what you hear and hear. And this guy played a significant role in shaping this church. More about that in in a minute. On May the 21st of 1922, Fosdick preached a sermon. He was serving a Presbyterian church in New York City at the time. That sermon was reported in the newspapers and was spread all over the United States. And the sermon reads as relevantly today as it did when he first preached it, so much so that I put a copy of this sermon on the Ordinary Life website, and if you go there and look under Resources, you can see it. And the sermon was called, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And it preaches, as it reads as relevantly today as it did when Fosdick first did it. That sermon is in part what led to his being on the cover of Time magazine. Now, of course, Fosdick's sermon prompted a response. And the response was made uh, by another probably not known to you all, but well known to anyone who goes to seminary, a scholar by the name of Clarence McCartney, he gave the other side of the question, and he preached a sermon called, Shall Unbelief Win? Clever use of language. So the fight was on between the modernist, as they were called, and the fundamentalist. Fosdick was brought up on charges of heresy by the Presbyterians, which he escaped by accepting a call to a Baptist church in New York City. (laughs) At that church, he had a patron by the name of John D. Rockefeller. And Rockefeller said to Fosdick, Don't worry about your future. I'm going to build you a church. And so John D. Rockefeller, with all of his money, built Riverside Church in Manhattan. It's on 119th Street and Riverside Drive, one of the most amazing churches and iconography inside you could ever imagine. It's just stunning. And Fosdick served there until he retired in 1946. To show you how times have changed, The New York Times used to send a reporter to Riverside Church every Sunday to listen to Vosnick's sermon and then report on it in the paper the next day. He was a a man who did theology in the public square. He was profoundly popular and influential. And as a matter of fact, it was his going to uh, Riverside that prompted the cover This cover appeared on Time Magazine October 6, 1930. Um, I'll just give you the aside. The way that St. Paul's fits into this is that there was a man in Houston who aspired to be a John D. Rockefeller. You're sitting in a building named after him. The Jesse Jones building. And Jesse H. Jones was the primary energy that built that cathedral across the plaza and it's not riverside church but it's built kind of like riverside church Um, and you got to give jesse jones and the houston foundation credit for doing an incredible amount of philanthropic good in uh, this city all sorts of things were named after him Fosdick's bio on Wikipedia uh, lists almost 50 books that he produced. Most of them are sermons or reprints of sermons that he he gave. Um, And um, he he wrote a a number of books that were designed primarily just for preachers, just for seminary students. And one of the things he said that made an impression on me, he said there were at least two marks of a good sermon. One, it had to be like a good, intimate conversation held in one's living room with good friends. Not bombastic and pontifical, but like that. And he also said that a good sermon ought to blend the best of contemporary biblical and religious studies with the best insights from the growing field of psychology. And that's what I wanted to do with my life's work, was to take theological, religious teachings and put psychological insights together. Very much reminiscent of what Karl Barth, when he said that the preachers should have the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in another to, to preach. He also said, and this is the reason I brought him up, that in addition to the fact that I think you you ought to know about him, but he also said that the preacher should keep in mind that no one gets up on Sunday morning and drives across town to hear the latest news of what happened to the Jebusites 4,000 years ago. Who cares? So I just want you to know that I know that none of you, as a motivation for being here today, got up and said, oh boy, I'm eager to learn some more about the Gospel of John. That is no one's head. I'm not fooling myself about that. But the agenda that I've set up is for us to do a deep dive into the Gospel of John. So as I see it, I have at least two tasks to accomplish in the time that we are together today. First, I want to make this both interesting and relevant for you as I attempt to show how a document that was put together in probably the year 100, around there, is as relevant for us today as tomorrow's newspaper. That's my first task. And the second task I have is to finish talking before you finish listening. So, we'll see if we can go there. You getting it? Yeah. Uh, Jim Finley said one time that that um, the path to enlightenment is a race between enlightenment and senility. You know, <laughs> we're just kind of all going in that direction at the same time. He said, we are all like melting candles in a room together. Just like a cheerful thought. So last week we dealt with the story of the feeding of the 5,000 as it's called in John. This is a very, very important story to the developing uh, religious Jesus following community. It's repeated six times in the Gospels. Six different times, this this particular story. Since we don't take it literally, we know it didn't happen six different times. It was just their way of being emphatic about it. I said last week that we weren't treating this story as it ought to be treated because in the early community, the feeding story and the one that we're going to deal with together were intended to be back-to-back, like bookends. So um, this is the story that we're going to delve into today. And it's well known, too, by most people, whether they are churchgoers or not, because of all these images people have of the historical Jesus. And it's a story that you know of the time when Jesus walked on water. Now, here's the text as rendered by Eugene Peterson. In the evening, his disciples went down to the sea, got in the boat, and headed back across the water to Capernaum. It had grown quite dark, and Jesus had not yet returned a huge wind blew up, churning the sea. They were maybe three or four miles out when they saw Jesus walking on the sea quite near the boat. They were scared senseless, but he reassured them, it's me, it's all right, don't be afraid. So they took him on board. In no time, they reached land, the exact spot where they were headed to. The next day, the crowd that was left behind realized that there'd been only one boat and that Jesus had not gotten into it with his disciples. They had seen them go off without him. By now, boats from Tiberias had pulled up near where they had eaten the bread blessed by the Master. So when the crowd realized he was gone and wasn't coming back, they piled into Tiberias' boats and headed for Capernaum looking for Jesus. But when they found him back across the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus said, you've come looking not for, for me, not because you saw God in my actions, but because I fed you, filled your stomachs and for free. Now, just with, as with the uh, feeding story, Both the progressives and the conservatives misread this story. And uh, I don't need to remind you of the times that I have said, cautioned you, beware of labels. Don't put a label on you, it's a trap. So, the fundamentalists, of course, take this story along with other miracles as stories literal. If the Bible says Jesus walked on water, Jesus walked on water, that's the end of the story, period. Forget it. That's it. In the fundamentalist point of view, believing in the literal nature of miracles is one of the five things you have to believe in order to be a Christian. What happened after the effort to investigate Fosdick for his gone wrong theology. And by the way, a man, before um, Fosdick left the Presbyterian church from which he gave that sermon, uh, the Presbyterians did call for an inquiry. They called it. It was a heresy trial. And Fosdick got somebody to defend him, to be his defense counsel. And that person was John Foster Dulles who eventually became Secretary of State under Dwight D. Eisenhower. Foster Dulles' father was a theologian, and Foster Dulles himself was a great biblical scholar. We don't have a lot of great biblical scholars in our politicians today. I'll just point that out. So the fundamentalists drew up their list of fundamentals that had to be believed to be a Christian. And these, of course, were, first of all, the literal, infallible nature of the Bible because Fosdick's claim was that the Bible could not, should not be taken literally. So the first of the fundamentals of fundamentalism has to do with the infallibility of the Bible. The other four of the fundamentals were the literal nature of the virgin birth, The atonement for our sins on the cross by Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the literal nature of the miracles. Now, according to fundamentalist teaching, even to this day, if you do not adhere to these five things, you're not a Christian. So while the fundamentalists took this story literally, so did the progressives, just like with the miracles of the feeding story. The progressives took that literally. Remember, they said it really happened, but Jesus didn't multiply the loaves and fishes. People, seeing the generosity of the little boy, pulled out their own food, and there was enough for everybody. And so the progressives on this story say, of course Jesus didn't walk on the water. He walked near the edge of the water, And the disciples thought he was walking on the water. That was it. So both of the ways of interpreting the story miss its more powerful parabolic nature. Just like the parables of the prodigal son or the parable of the Good Samaritan, this parable, this story of Jesus walking on the water is a parable. It's a parable created by the early church. The five fundamentals of fundamentalism, like the creeds of the church, were developed in and with a worldview that no longer exists. We know that virgins don't get pregnant. We know that people, no matter how holy they claim to be, can walk on water. We know that a physical resurrection and ascension of a body into heaven makes no sense in the cosmological understanding that we have today. Where is that? One of the reasons increasing both religious and spiritual literacy becomes so clearly important is in knowing the cycle of the miracle stories attributed to Jesus and where they came from. The miracle stories attributed to Jesus came from two cycles in the Hebrew Scriptures. The cycle of miracles attributed to Moses and Joshua. And the cycle of miracles attributed to Elijah and Elisha. Okay? Jesus was a Jew. Not a Methodist. The followers of Jesus were Jewish. And they were creating a Jewish story about someone who had opened their understanding of God and life. And more importantly, they were crafting these stories as things to be used in the Jewish liturgy because they all follow the Jewish year of of feast. These stories were meant to be around the feast of the Passover, these stories. Now, in what we call the Old Testament, but I think it's more helpful, it's it's more accurate and and helpful to refer to it as the Hebrew scriptures, they're full of miracle stories. The first is when the children of Israel are escaping their bondage in Egypt, you remember. They're well on their way, and they come to the Red or Reed Sea. They're being pursued by Pharaoh's army, and Moses raises his staff. The waters part, and the children of Israel go across. They're safely across. The Hebrew army gets halfway across, and Moses takes his staff down, and whap, they're dead. They're gone. Now you get a picture of God that's shaping up here is not one you want to hang out with. Huh? Don't cross this God. So um a lot of people to this day still think of God as in a frightening, He's gonna get me kind of way. So there's several stories about Jesus in the water in the New Testament. Water at the well. Calming the sea, walking on water, all of that. Turning water into wine. In the desert, when the people had no food, God, at Moses' request, rained down bread from heaven upon them. Story last week, the miraculous feeding. Moses and Jesus just alike. When there was a shortage of water, Moses struck a rock and water flowed forth. And here again is an abundance out of nothing, meager resources. In uh, Hebrew scripture, Moses was not the only miracle worker through whom God worked. When Moses died, he was succeeded by Joshua, who had been his military captain. And one of the story traditions of that time was to wrap stories about a hero around his successor. They weren't being dishonest when they did that. It was the way that, that stories were crafted and told in that particular time. And that way, that would convey to the people who heard them that in a way, Moses was still with them. Okay. So Moses had been portrayed as able to command the forces of nature. nature so Joshua would have the same power. So one day, Joshua... His army needed more daylight in which his soldiers would be able to kill more retreating Amorites. And so Joshua raised his arms and the sun stopped. Now you know in our cosmology, this didn't happen. But it did give more daylight for the Israelites to kill the Amorites. Which is just the kind of thing you can see God buying into. So Moses and Joshua were, were connected to Jewish law. And so in the Hebrew scriptures, the big emphasis in the Torah is on the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And two of the leading prophets in the Jewish tradition were Elijah and Elisha. Now, not only did these two guys have the power to affect nature, they also had the power to expand the food supply. They both had the power to part water um, and, and that stood in their way. They both had the power to heal people. They both had the power to raise people from the dead, we think, When we think about the Jesus story, that he is the only one to whom it is attributed that he had the power to raise people from the dead. But Elijah and Elisha could do that as well as the disciples of Jesus after his death and resurrection. They had that power too. So um, in the Jesus cycle, the miracles attributed to him fall into four broad categories. There are the nature miracles. That is, he can steal the water. He has the ability to walk on water. There are the narratives about his ability to expand the food supply. And we have seen that. And then there are the raising of the dead stories attributed to Jesus. There are five of them in the gospel narratives. We are... Um, one of them, The Raising of Lazarus, is one of the sign stories in the book of John, one of the book of sign stories. Um, and fourth, there are all the healing stories told about Jesus. And these are stories in which the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk. And um, as I said, these same healing miracle stories are also applied To the disciples in the book of Acts. So I think the important thing to discern is trying to determine what these stories meant when they were first told, when they were first heard, and then what they might mean for us. Now, I want to be very clear with you I believe in miracles. I think that what we are doing right now is a miracle that I can cause two flaps of skin to vibrate in my throat and send out sound waves that reach your ear and that you can receive those sound waves and translate them into something that is intelligible for you. That's a miracle. I believe that a shift in perception... that allows us to experience even a smidgen of non-duality. That's a miracle. Time and again, the teachings of Jesus help me make that shift. I think the very act of committing to peace, love, joy, patience, and humility is a miracle. The, The ability to do that It allows us to transform a negative emotion of judgment into a compassionate one, to put the story of separation aside for a moment and replace it with mutual respect. Just the power to be present is a superpower. It's a miracle. Now, by the time the Gospel of John was put together, those in that group, had already been cast out of the synagogue. Again, keep in mind, this is a Jewish writing for Jewish people. John was not written any part of it for Southern Baptists who were gathered in Tennessee in the 1940s. But that's what I was taught. Not a word of it was written to shape decisions about the inclusion or exclusion of people who identify other than heterosexual. But that's another story. The writer of John is saying that Jesus must be for them both the new Moses and a new doorway into the meaning and understanding of God. They have to leave behind what they had and embrace something entirely new. Now I want you to keep that sentence in mind. They had to leave behind what they had and learn to embrace something entirely new because we're going to return to it. But when it was time to go forward to something new, The disciples pulled back. They got scared. They seemed to prefer the religious security from which they had been expelled to the anxiety of walking to a new place in their lives and living as well as to a new place in their understanding of God. That make sense? what I'm saying? So they left Jesus. They got in a boat, a metaphor, and headed out across the sea. They did it in the dark. Dark in the Gospel of John is always a sign of secrecy and fear. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in the dark. Dark is always a way of being apart from Christ. So these disciples were alone on the sea. The waves were rising. A strong wind was blowing. Rowing became impossible, and they were terrified. This is when they saw Jesus coming, walking on the water, which terrified them even more. And Jesus comes to them, and the way that Peterson translates it, which I use today, He says, it's me, it's all right, don't be afraid. Except, that's not what he said. That is not in the New Testament. That is not what the Greek has. The Greek has just two words that get translated into that big long phrase. Just two words. And the two words are, I am. Now remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? When she said, we know that the Messiah is coming and the day. And, And Jesus, the translation says, Jesus said, I am he to whom you speak. That's not what it says there either, which we talked about when we were doing that story. What Jesus says is, I am. And later on in the Gospel of John, get ready for it. It's going to come. There are going to be all these great I am statements that have thrown people for a loop ever since they read them in English. I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the way to life. I am the door. I am, I am, I am. He's saying something here in code. Where in the world did that phrase come from? So There's this guy, Moses, who's out tending his father's sheep. And he sees a bush that is burning but not consumed. And a voice says, Moses, take off your shoes and come over here. I want to talk to you. And they have this conversation. And the, and, and the voice from the bush says, I want you to go rescue my people from Egyptian bondage. And, and Mo- Moses says, Mm-mm, not me. I ain't your guy. I, don't, I can't speak. Um, I don't have a skill. And besides, who will I say sent me? And the voice says, tell them I am sent you. Get the connection. Jesus is using, or the the writer of John is putting those same words in the mouth of Jesus. I am the life of God calling you into something new. Something frightening and dangerous. I am the love of God calling you to move beyond your defensive barriers, your security walls, and and into a new understanding of what it means to be human. Receive me from the water and into your boat. So, the first symbol of the church is a boat. It's a ship. And if you go across into that sanctuary or any other Gothic cathedral in the world and just look up, you're looking at the bottom of a boat. Today, you can sneak over there before 11 o'clock and just go in there and look up at it. If you haven't been, it's like being inside a kaleidoscope anyway. Now, before bringing this even closer to home, I want to teach a bit of theology. I've been teaching Bible up to now. There's a difference. The word theology is made up of two words. It's the word theos, which means God, and logos, which means words. So theology is words, of, words about God. So one of the most important books of theology ever written was written by this guy. He is a German, was a German Lutheran uh, theologian by the name of Rudolf Otto. And Rudolf Otto is the man who coined the word numinous. A numinous experience is one where you have an awareness that there is more fulfillment and more presence than at some other time. It's always here. We just aren't really aware of it all the time. We have these numinous experiences. A profound emotional moment where we experience some sort of profound insight. I am sure that this is what Bill Wilson meant, he's the co-founder of AA, when he said that the beginning of sobriety happens when somebody has a valid religious experience. And I'm also sure that this is what Carl Jung meant when he said that Among all my patients in the second half of life that is above the age of 35, there has not been a one for whom whom the resolution of their difficulty did not reside in finding a religious solution to life's dilemma. Now Jung didn't mean religion like we think of religion. But that's what both of these people are talking about, these numinous experiences where we get an insight into who we truly are and how safe we are, and and how loved we are. So he wrote a book, this guy, Rudolf Otto, called The Idea of the Holy. It's one of the most important books ever written. Not an easy read, I'm not recommending it, but I'll just tell you about it. In the book, what Rudolf Otto says is that when people have one of these numinous experiences, they find that they are caught up in two Intense experiences at the same time. And he referred to these polar opposite experiences as the mysterium tremendum and the mysterium fascinosum That is to say the scary mystery and the alluring mystery. We both draw back. And her pull forward at the same time. Now, if you have difficulty with this, just think back to your first encounter with your own sexuality. Exciting and terrifying at the same time, right? So, in the Mysterium Tremendum, God is ultimately far. God is ultimately beyond. It's God is too much. Um, just too much. You get a lot of this in the Hebrew Prophets in the Hebrew Scripture, particularly Isaiah, has a lot of this in in Isaiah. This notion inspires fear, awe, drawing back. And a lot of people never get over this understanding of God. And if this is where one ends up, then um, sin management com- becomes the heart of religion. You know, what do I got to do to be on the good side of this? God, and the clergy become the sin managers, just like in the day of Jesus. You want to be clean, that's what you got to do. But Otto says, in addition to this experience, there's one of fascination, there's one of allurement, there's one of seduction. It's a being pulled into something very good and inviting and wonderful. This is very paradoxical. This is a very non-dual. And Rudolf Otto says that if we don't have both, we don't have a full experience of the holy. So that gives you an agenda, something to work on. You know, the phrase uh, to be at sea doesn't come from the story that we're dealing with today, but it might as well have. You've heard the phrase, right? To be at sea. To be at sea uh, means to be in a state of confusion and disorder. And it came into being sometime around the 18th century before the navigational aid sea folk, seagoing folks have today to know where they are, where they're going, when they're out at sea and they can't see the shoreline. They're at sea. Now, we have been at sea as a country, as a church, as a class since March of 2020. That's almost two years. That was when COVID hit us, and at that time, ordinary life as we knew it went away. So did worship services here. You know, many businesses went under during the last two years. The death toll was and still is Astronomical. Issues related to COVID and its treatment and management, the spread of the disease became not only politicized, but divisive. Now, we as a church were so fortunate that when COVID hit, we had the technology in place, and we had a person on the staff at St. Paul's in charge of development who had economic structures in place so that we were able to survive that. We could do these live streams, and although it was easier to do in here than it was to do across the way, it was really very difficult to record and upload and post and preach to empty cathedrals. Oh, it's awful. It was exhausting. And from this side of the camera, to be in this space by yourself, is not fulfilling at all. Thank God for Holly Hoodley. She taught with me every Sunday without remuneration. Um, And in the beginning, we thought that COVID would last us, that we would be teaching six weeks, eight weeks, stretched into two years. During that time, a lot of churches had to close their doors. They're, They're gone. They're out of business. So on June the 6th of last year, we were able to open up for in-person gatherings, and I remember our standing back there welcoming people as you came up the steps, um, and it, it was like opening night. It was so energizing. It was just wonderful. Um, and that Sunday, we had a little over 70 people show up. That's about half the number that were showing up when Their Life was meeting prior to covid Worship services opened at St. Paul's with two services, not the three that we had been having. And then, darn it, a new variant hit. And there was talk about going back and shutting down again. But as someone aptly put it, you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. So we continued in-person services and classes, but attendance has been drastically reduced. At the 8.30 service three weeks ago, there were 20 people. We had about 40 here that particular Sunday. And people who are much better at reading the signs of the times than I am are saying that we are likely never, ever going to get back to the place we were prior to COVID. I cannot imagine the circumstances in which St. Paul's would decide to add a third worship service to our Sunday schedule. I just can't see that happening. So we're grieving and scared, like those disciples. The temptation is to get in the boat and get the hell out of here, one way or the other, metaphorically. Some of you, not everybody, to be clear, some of you wanted Ordinary Life to return to Bill teaching solo. Um, I confess I desired that too. I was greatly conflicted about pushing for that. I've come to love and value Holly as a friend and co-teacher. She's been a lifesaver for you. And I wanted to confess publicly to you that the way I communicated the desire, some of you and my own for solo teaching The way I handle that has been harmful to and for Holly. And I take full responsibility for that. I have hurt Holly. I have hurt myself. And I think I've hurt this class. I didn't have her back as I should have. And if I had a magic wand, which I do, but it doesn't work, I'd go back to the kind of schedule we had pre-pandemic. That's not possible at this point. Now, I can and will repair my relationship with Holly, but I wanted to be upfront with you about how I have botched things and to explain why you won't be seeing Holly around for a while. And um, I just want to apologize for the harm I've caused. So in light of this, and in keeping with this amazing story, I have four things I want to say to you. First is something about spiritual practice. In a one-on-one meeting I was having some time ago, someone asked me, because I nag about it all the time, I know I do. Well, what happens when you sit in meditation? And the words that came out of my mouth were, well, when you take up a meditation practice, all hell breaks loose. We are, I am, you are, trying to work out our understanding of who and who, what we are, how to live and love in a world that seems to be going mad. Each of us, your teacher included, takes our baggage with us. We screw up. We make mistakes. It's easy to get scared. I'm speaking metaphorically here. And get on our boats and head out. We think We're saving our lives, but we are only getting into more turbulent seas, much of which is turmoil of our own making. Now, those of you who've ever had a sitting meditation practice know exactly what I'm talking about. We shut off the phones. We shut the door. We sit. We set a timer, 15, 20 minutes. We commit to sit. We get our back straight, we're alert, we're focused on our breathing. Perhaps we have a mantra that we say on the intake of the breath. Uh, Grace is a good mantra. This too shall pass is a good mantra. Jim Finley says the mantra he recommends to people is I love you, I love you, I love you. You hear that and say it at the same time. So we have this precious 15 or 20 minutes to be, and what happens next? All hell breaks loose. Fearful news stories pop up. Things we've done to mess up our lives. Oh, the lives of others impinge. All right, you get focus on your mantra again, then you wonder, who is it I'm seeing at 3 o'clock today? Uh, okay, back breath, intake. What's for supper? Rats. I should have been focusing on my mantra. This is really getting me anywhere. Maybe there's a better way to meditate, and I just haven't found it. And what's the mantra I was going to use today? Maybe I need a better mantra. Did I set the alarm properly? Maybe I better take a look. Rats, only four minutes have passed. <laughs> Maybe I should go do the 10 day retreat again. Get back. What advice would Jim Finley give me right now? I'm out of the room all the time. Go, go, go. Just to come back, come back, come back. Jack Cornfield, somebody that I listened to about um, Vipassana meditation before going to do the 10 days, said, your mind is like a puppy being trained to paper. It wanders off, and you have to gently bring it back. Your mind wanders off, and you have to gently bring it back. So when I went and did the 10-day, I was sitting there. Uh, This is 17 hours a day of meditation without speaking, and I thought of what... uh, Jack Cornfield has said about the puppy dog running back. And I thought, oh my goodness, Um, my karma has run over my dogma. This is not working. Not working. So we have to be willing to step into the stormy sea and admit it. Second thing I want to say is that in another place where Jesus is walking on water, Peter sees him. And Peter says, Master, if you bid it, I can come to you. And Jesus says, come on. And so Peter hops out of the boat and heads across on the water and looks down. And he starts sinking. That's the origin of the phrase, Peter's out. Seriously, when something peters out, that's Peter going down in the water because he took his eyes off Jesus. Third, we're all in the same boat together, and we need to treat each other like that. When we peter out, we need to fess up, make amends, and as far as these teachings go, we need to invite Jesus back in the boat. And the fourth thing I want to say is everything is going to be okay. It won't be like it was because nothing is, nothing can be. Things arise, they fall away. But as Dame Julian said, all shall be well. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And Jeff and I will see you here next Sunday. Thank you.